Hello everyone. This is the very first podcast of Bible Beyond. Bible Beyond is a podcast where we'll learn about different stories and ideas in the Bible and how they apply to us today. We'll post roughly every month, and I'll also be quoting all scripture from the ESV. It's a very easy version to understand, and yet it's still very accurate. Now as for our first episode, we're going to examine a verse that pretty much defines the entire Christian faith. I think it summarizes the gospel in a very effective way, and many of you already know it. The verse is John 3.16, and it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I figured this would be an appropriate topic to kick off the podcast with, as it really is the foundation of our faith. So John 3.16 starts off talking about God, for God so loved the world. And while, yes, this one verse mentions God, the entire Bible is about him. So let's take a really quick look at who he is. First off, the Bible describes him as three persons in one. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is a really confusing topic. Scholars have been trying to figure this out, how three persons can exist as one for a very long time. So I'm not going to be spending too much time trying to explain it, because frankly, I don't understand it. However, in order to understand the rest of this episode, we do need to know some about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is supposed to be our helper here on earth. In John 14:26, it says, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name... He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So what the Holy Spirit does is teaches us and reminds us about what we have learned from him. And the Bible says, again, that the Spirit is sent to us by our Father in someone's name. In the context of the rest of the chapter, we see that that person's name is Jesus, who is also called the Son. The reason they're called the Father and Son is because they have a Father-Son relationship. And what's very interesting is that Jesus means to deliver or to rescue. The Bible says in Matthew 1.21, She will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now remember that, because it's going to be very important later. Now that we know who God is, why don't we find out what he's like? What are his attributes that make him God? Well, God has a lot of attributes. He's loving, kind, powerful, smart, bright. In fact, he has a ton of different names. He's called the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, the Holy One, the Good Shepherd, the Light of the World, just to name a few. But all of God's many attributes and character traits can roughly be divided into three categories. The first is that he's infinite in power. He is infinite in his ability. He can do anything he wants. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is outside his limits. It says in Matthew 19.26, But Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, 
But with God, all things are possible. He's also infinite in his knowledge. He literally knows everything. Paul says this in his letter to the Romans. He writes, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And lastly, he's infinite in his goodness, which is really a broad term, but it actually means exactly what it sounds like. Everything he does is good. He has a completely unbiased and perfect view of what is just and what is not just. But while he is completely good, I want to focus on a subsection, you could say, of his goodness. And that is, he is extremely loving. In fact, in Romans 5.8, it says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's who God is. He's three persons in one, who is infinite in his power, knowledge, and goodness. Now let's talk about what us humans have to do with God. The Bible teaches in Genesis that the entire world was created in six days, with each day God creating something different. He created the sun and the stars and the moon and the ocean. He created everything. And on the sixth day, God created mankind to share in the privilege of ruling over this creation that God had made. He created a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. And at this time, when they were first created, they were naked. And more importantly, the Bible says they were not ashamed. They didn't see anything wrong with it because that was what God had intended. Obviously, this sounds really weird to hear in today's world, but I think this is a significant concept in the story. Not just that they were naked, but that they were not ashamed of it. At the end of the six days, God looked at everything he had created, every atom that he had made, and he said, it is good. Now that's amazing, because remember, God is infinite in his goodness. So, if anyone can rightly determine whether something qualifies as good or not, it's him. And by that logic, if he looked at everything and said it was good, then God had made the perfect creation. And that's why his original creation is called the Garden of Eden. Eden means paradise. So this garden is literally paradise. Everything was good. There was nothing bad, no evil in the garden. So God told the humans, Adam and Eve, that they had the freedom to eat anything in the garden, except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God warned them that if they ate the fruit from that tree, they would someday die. And for a while, the humans obeyed. They didn't disobey God. They lived happily ever after and had a perfect relationship with one another. But obviously something changed. Because as we all know for a fact, there's a lot of bad in our world, which is not how God intended it. Remember, he created it to all be good. And the reason for this is that a being named Satan came into the garden in the form of a snake. Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't say much about who Satan is and how he came into the garden. However, the Bible does thoroughly explain his character. 
commonly referring to him as the father of lies. In John 8, it says he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Notice how this verse says that there was no truth in him. Absolutely none. He is totally and completely evil. As you may assume, he had very bad intentions. And while he was in the garden, he said to Eve that the fruit wasn't actually bad. In fact, it would make her like God if they ate it. He told them that if they ate the fruit, they would become like God and be able to rule over creation in their own way. Now we know this isn't true because God already said not to eat the fruit because you'll die. But unfortunately, Adam and Eve trusted the snake instead of God. They ate of the fruit, and for the first time in the history of mankind, they sinned. At that moment, they realized they were naked. They weren't wearing anything. And previously, they didn't wear any clothes because in the garden, there was no such thing as sin. There was nothing for them to hide. So this transition, this realization that they were naked, also symbolizes that they went from having nothing to hide or be ashamed of to being inadequate. So they sewed some leaves together to create makeshift clothes. And then in the evening, when God decided to visit them, he saw that Adam and Eve had hidden from him. So he asked, where are you? And in Genesis 3.10, Adam says, So I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. As a result of their sin, God banishes them from the garden. And he went the extra mile, too. He put a flaming sword in their way so that they could never come back. Now, all this seems very harsh. Why would they have to be banished? The reason is because they were no longer pure. And that's a huge problem because the garden is perfect. But by sinning, Adam and Eve became imperfect. So, first of all, this means that if they were to continue living in the garden, then the garden would be imperfect because there is now imperfection in the garden. But more importantly for Adam and Eve, they now cannot coexist with God because God is pure and they aren't. So, yeah, it's a very bad thing that the humans can no longer be with God. But what does this really entitle for us today? Well, first of all, we need to address why humanity needs God. John Stuart Mill was an English philosopher, and he wrote a book where he discusses the concept of utilitarianism. We're not discussing that theory today, but one of the points he made in his book is that happiness, the want that we have to feel good is the entire reason we do anything. In his book, he says, if human nature is so constituted as to desire nothing which is not either a part of happiness or as a means of happiness, then we can have no other proof and we require no other that these are the only things desirable. And here's the important part. If so, happiness 
is the sole end of human action. What he's saying is that everything we do is to be happy. And in a lot of ways, this makes perfect sense. Think about it. Many people work very hard in their careers. But why do they do that? They don't work hard because work makes them happy. They're instead doing it so that they can obtain the outcome of their hard work. For some, this may be that they want their company or startup to succeed because they think that will make them happy. Or maybe they want a promotion because they think their success will make them happy. Maybe they work hard so that they can become rich and in turn, be happy. But in the garden, Adam and Eve didn't have to work hard to be happy. And this is because they were with God. The way God had originally intended it was A, humans to have a need. B, God would be exactly what they need. And C, they would be able to fulfill that need through God and enjoy his presence. However, when humanity was expelled from the garden, we were no longer with God. What they had originally been created to do, which was to live and rule with God, was no longer possible. But now here's the thing. Just because Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden doesn't mean they no longer wanted to be with God. They still did. They still felt the void that God was meant to fill. And therefore, we have to turn to other things that we think can bring us peace and joy. Things like money or power or success. The problem with this is that once we get these things, we find that we still aren't fulfilled. We all have experience with this phenomenon, where we try to get something to be happy. We get it, and we find that we still aren't happy. It's sort of like a cycle, where you're tricked into thinking something will make you happy. You try to get that, and then it disappoints you. Most people listening probably haven't accomplished some incredible achievement, like becoming a millionaire or winning the World Series, but we see this on a smaller scale, too. I remember when I was a little kid, I so badly wanted to get this Lego set. It had a truck and some motorcycles. It was just the coolest thing. So I started mowing the lawn and doing chores to save up the $20 to buy this Lego set. And although I didn't really consciously know this at the time, I could have never said it this way, the reason I wanted it was because I was under the impression it would make me happy. Eventually, I did earn the money to order it, and I still remember, I still remember staring at the clock, just counting the hours until it would arrive at our doorstep. And when it came, I was so excited. It did make me happy. I had fun building it and playing with it afterwards. But then this funny thing started to happen. With each passing day, the level of enjoyment I derived from it slowly declined. In fact, I eventually forgot about it altogether. Now why is this? After all, I was so excited. Why did that joy decline? The reason is because the Lego set only acted as a substitute for God. Now, if I were Adam living alongside God, I would have never wanted the Lego set. 
because the glory of God and the love that God has for me wouldn't even be comparable to a toy. The fulfillment that God would provide for me would mean that there is no longer any need for a Lego set. In fact, in Romans 15.13, it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. But the thing is, we don't live in the garden with God because of our sin. And this is quite a concept, so I came up with an example. Uh, imagine a puzzle. Each piece has another piece that fits perfectly, and no two are the same. Now let's pretend that humanity is represented by one puzzle piece, and God is represented by another. Our piece has a groove in it, an extra space that has to be filled with another piece in order to complete the puzzle. That space represents a desire in us that has to be filled. That desire is for fulfillment, peace, happiness. Now those things, fulfillment, peace, and happiness, most of us could agree those are good qualities. And it just so happens that we recently talked about someone who is infinite in their goodness. That would be God. And God is the piece that was supposed to complete the puzzle. However, what if you try to fit in another piece that was not meant to fit? We'll call this piece sin. Well, two problems would arise. Number one, the piece that was originally meant to fit, the piece that represents God, would no longer be able to fit along with the other piece. In a puzzle, you can't cram in two pieces into one piece. There's only room for one. And secondly, the sin piece would not be a perfect match because remember, only one piece fits and that is God. This is why we have suffering and war and poverty because everyone is trying to find their way back to the garden. The reason people murder or steal is just the result of our sinful nature that has torn us apart from God. The reason we have sickness, which is very relevant right now, is because we're no longer with God, and therefore bad events can occur. So this leaves humanity with a dilemma. As we've previously established, people crave fulfillment. And according to the Bible, that is because God created us with the intention that we would live with him and he would provide us. But because of sin, because of the sin we commit, we cannot exist with God. And yet, just because we no longer derive fulfillment from God doesn't mean we don't need it anymore. It's actually the opposite. We do need him. We need him more than ever. And if all this is true, then it looks like we'll have to settle for living our eternity. Not just this life, but our eternity with a vacuum that can never be filled. But this is where Jesus comes into the picture. Although, yes, Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, God still didn't leave them without hope. Instead, he promises Eve that one of her descendants will defeat the snake. But there's a catch. God says that, yes, while he'll defeat the snake, he'll be wounded in the process. In Genesis 3.15, God, God is talking to the snake and he tells him, 
I will put I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So humanity now has this wonderful promise that one day they'll be saved from their punishment. But this promise doesn't come right away. In fact, well over half the Bible is dedicated to the events leading up to Jesus. The Bible basically goes on telling us about this story about Eve's children, and a lot happens. God chooses a group of people called the Israelites to be the people whom Jesus comes from. The Israelites go through a lot in their time. They're enslaved, and God rescues them. They build a magnificent kingdom, and then they're captured, and there are miracles and periods of destruction. And although it takes a while, Jesus is eventually born to this people. We said before that God is a spiritual being, but Jesus, that part of God, was born with a human body. He was still God, but through his birth, he was given the body of a human. And his birth is really interesting. You would think that if the creator of the universe came to us, he would come with his legions of angels, and there would be bright lights, and it would be glorious and magnificent, or something like that. But really, almost the exact opposite happens. Jesus is actually birthed by a woman named Mary, who is not rich or powerful. And on top of that, she's a virgin. How on earth would she give birth to Jesus? The Bible says in Luke 1, 27, verse 33, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And as promised, nine months later, that's exactly what happens. Jesus is born to Mary and her husband Joseph, not even in a house, but in a barn with a bunch of animals. It's incredible. Although it seems like the most humble birth possible, the person born, Jesus, has come to literally save humanity from their own sin. The way he was born does not correspond with what he was going to do in his lifetime. Honestly, I would love to touch more on Jesus' birth, but we'll save that for another podcast. Anyway, after he's born, his ministry doesn't begin right away. It actually takes about 30 years before he starts preaching and performing miracles. In the Old Testament, there were prophets sent by God to the people of Israel, reminding them that someday the Son of God would come and he would save the world. The difference with Jesus is that he preached he was the Son of God and he was going to save the world. And there's also something else about Jesus' life that's unique. Because he was literally God in the form of a man, he was perfect. Let's go back to Adam and Eve for a second. The reason they sinned was because they had a sinful nature, because they were only human. However, while his body was of a man, he was still God, so he never sinned, never made a mistake. Now, this sounds like great news. In fact, it is the good news. 
But the religious leaders of Israel, called the Pharisees, did not happen to appreciate Jesus. They may have been the ones who taught the people about God and such, but they weren't actually always fair. They would try to make money off of people. They were prideful. They were sinful. It was pretty bad. So when Jesus came telling people the truth and warning the Pharisees that they should stop being so mean, the Pharisees became very hateful of Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 5, we learn that the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. In chapter 8, they tried to kill him. And in chapter 19, they did kill him. What's horrible is that they didn't do it in a decent way. They did it by means of crucifixion. Crucifixion back then was one of the worst punishments to receive. First off, he was tortured and beaten and mocked. In fact, the pain most likely sent him into a state of shock. Then they had him carry a hundred pound cross for an hour up to a hill. And once they were there, they attached him to the cross, not with ropes or chains, but with nails. And they waited for six hours while he hung there dying. Now that's just what physically happened. Spiritually, the implications of this event are literally world-changing. And the sad thing is, or interesting, is that the worst thing that could possibly happen to Jesus is the best thing that could happen to us. You see, by dying on the cross, Jesus suffered the punishment that we couldn't, so that we could someday live with God. In Matthew 27, verse 50 through 54, it says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Now that's the moment when he died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him kept keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now this is a crazy situation. It's like three supernatural disasters all in one. First of all, the temple curtain is randomly torn down, there's an earthquake, the rocks start splitting, and then the saints come out of their tombs. For context, the temple was previously the place where Jews, specifically Jews, would go to worship and pray to God. Only there, and only the Jewish people could. What's so important, what's so symbolic about the veil tearing, is that God's redemption was now available to everyone. The veil was torn. There was no longer anything in between God and his people. Do, do you know what that means? It means that sin no longer is separating us from God. We don't have to die and spend eternity in hell away from God. We can accept the mercy God has for us right now. And you know what the best part is? God then raised Jesus back to life. When two of Jesus' friends, Mary and Mary, came to anoint his body, they didn't find Jesus defeated as a slave to death. 
In fact, the only thing they found were the cloths that Jesus had been buried in. And then, all of a sudden, an angel says to them in Matthew 28, verse 5 through 7, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And then as Jesus comes to visit his disciples, Matthew 28, verse 17 through 18, And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus had not only given himself up for the sake of the world, but he defeated the things we feared at the same time. So where does this put us now? Jesus has now made it available to us to know God, but how do we take advantage of this? What rituals and deeds do we have to perform in order to accept his salvation? Nothing. We aren't supposed to do anything. God doesn't expect us to do anything except to ask him to save us. Just to ask. In Acts 16.31, it says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. That's all you have to do. You just have to believe that what Jesus did on the cross saves you from your sins. This is the greatest news ever. Because we no longer have to live without God. God will now come to live with us in our hearts as it was previously determined. When we die, it is not the end. It is the beginning of our wonderful eternity with God. And that is the good news. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you want to take advantage of this good news, all you have to do is pray, God, I'm a sinner and have no means by which to save myself. So I ask that you would let Jesus cover my sins so that you would raise me from the dead just like you did with him so I can live like you initially intended me to. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been the first episode of Bible Beyond. Thank you for listening, and if you want to hear more, check back with us on the first of every month, when we'll have a new episode ready. Have a great day.